I'm not saying that the lawyers are doing the wrong thing by advocating for their client. It's just that when you look at this person whose entire life seems to be to evade rules and evade justice and evade accountability, it's really, it's really problematic. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. My blog, May It Please the Court, is up and running in this new year, so please check it out at mayitpleasethecourt.com. And shortly, this June, we'll be releasing Bad Decisions, 10 Famous Trials That Changed History. For the past two episodes of the Lawyer to Lawyer, we've covered SCOTUS cases that have included ballot access and immunity with former President Trump at the forefront of those cases. Well, Trump has also been charged in four criminal cases, and according to a recent political article tracking the Trump criminal cases, he faces four felony counts in Washington, D.C. for his January 6th efforts to overturn the 2020 election and before. In Georgia, he faces 13 felony counts for his election interference, the famous, I just need to find 11,270 votes conversation. New York, he faces 34 felony counts in connection with his hush money payments to porn star Stormy Daniels and his former attorney, Michael Cohen. In Florida, he faces 40 felony counts for hoarding classified documents after he left office and impeding the government's effort to retrieve them. It's 91 felony counts in all. So what lies ahead for former President Trump? And will these cases go to trial before the election? What happens after the election? Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to spotlight these upcoming criminal cases of Trump and possible punishment, including a discussion about jail. And to help us better understand these cases, we're joined today by Professor Tamara R. Lave from the University of Miami. Tamara teaches criminal law, criminal procedure, criminal procedure adjudication, and importantly here, evidence. After graduating from Stanford Law School, Professor Lave was a deputy public defender for 10 years in San Diego, California. And in 2005, she left the PD's office to start her doctoral program in jurisprudence and social policy and interdisciplinary law and society program at the University of California, Berkeley. And welcome back to the show, Dr. Tamara. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, let's talk a little bit about your background first, uh, how your role as a public defender, what led you to become a professor at the University of Miami and teaching criminal law and procedure. Sure. So I was a public defender for 10 years in San Diego. Many of my friends from law school left to become extraordinarily wealthy, but I wanted to be a public defender and I loved every moment of it. I handled all kinds of cases ranging from the, you know, de minimis, like possessing a spiny lobster out of season, which went to trial and uh, to, uh, you know, much more murder, child molestation, et cetera. I love being a public defender, but I had always wanted to be a professor, so I started my PhD program. I wrote my dissertation about sexually violent predator laws, and I have been a professor at the University of Miami since 2010, and it is, in my humble opinion, the best job in the world. 
I'm interested to hear about your spiny lobster case. I mean, as a diver myself, uh, you, did somebody take it with a spear? Uh, you know, what actually happened was it was this case where my client was charged with taking one spiny lobster out of season and the lobster was actually returned. So it didn't die. It went to a jury trial. The jurors hung and one of the jurors then came and said to us that another one of the jurors had lied and they hidden the fact that they were actually biased. <laughs> and so then the prosecutor argued it should be tried again and the judge dismissed. So quite a case. One lobster saved. Well, talking about spiny lobsters, let's talk about uh, this Washington, D.C. case that's uh, up right now before the United States Supreme Court on the issue of novel presidential immunity. Yes. Well, I would certainly hope that President, former President Trump will lose on that. I would expect that he would. So I think that will, and it sounds like it's going to be resolved quickly because uh, Mr. Smith has, or Special Prosecutor Smith has responded quickly. And I would think that the uh, Supreme Court is going to deny the immunity claim and it will be sent back down. You think they're going to grant cert or do you just think they're going to postcard it and rely on the three judge panel below? You know, I don't I don't know what the answer to that is. I mean, I can imagine that they want to may want to bunt by having the keeping it with the um, three judge panel. But it's such an important issue that they may decide that they want to hear the case. Is it really that important? I mean, when you look at the number of presidents that have needed presidential immunity, do we really care? Well, unfortunately, it would appear that in this particular moment, we are moving towards being a more autocratic society and a more autocratic world. So I would like to think this won't matter for the future, but I'm not 100% confident that it doesn't. And I guess the other thing, too, is that one of the things that former President Trump is doing is standing around and saying at all of his campaign speeches about how he is being misused by the system and how he's being mistreated. And so perhaps the Supreme Court will think that, it, you know, to protect the rule of law, it's important for them to make a stand on this issue. I, I wish it wasn't important, but I think that it is. Do you think we'll get an in-bank review from the Supreme Court or will they just pick this up with a few judges and, and uh, send it on its way? Well, I mean, it depends. If, if they think that it's important enough, then I think that they would. Uh, I mean, look, it's possible that they may just that they may just issue a ruling and not have any names associated with it. You know, it's a really good question. It's funny. I really hadn't I hadn't thought about it. I mean, certainly the expeditious thing is to just send it back down. But. Like I said, you know, one of the things I think the Supreme Court should be thinking about is sort of what the case means to the public and to this particular moment. And if they do, then that's a strong argument for the fact that they should hear it. I guess the, the problem is that if they do hear it, it's going to delay things. I hope that they don't delay things because we have a, you know, an election coming up and potentially uh, a January deadline to get this thing taken care of. Now, what is Trump relying on? I mean, is there any kind of presidential immunity that, that exists for him after he's president? Well, I mean, his immune, I mean, what, well, he's arguing about, I mean, this case has to do with the immunity that he's claiming while he was president. So if he becomes, the issue with January 6th wouldn't be that he would use his current, his current executive power to impact what was going on at the time when he was president, I think the issue would be, or the concern is that he would try to, well, there's two things he would do. He would try to, first, if he's convicted, 
you know, give himself clemency. And the other thing is that he would um, try to just stop the election, which he would, excuse me, stop the prosecution, which he would have the ability to do because the Justice Department is part of the executive branch and he would be able to stop the Jack Smith. He could fire Jack Smith and the prosecution would just simply end. Yeah, moving those chess pieces forward, let's assume that he does get into office and he does fire Jack Smith and the prosecution ends or he is convicted. Can he pardon himself? So that is uh, that is an interesting question. We don't have a we certainly don't have an historic answer to that because it's never been an issue before. And uh, legal commentators disagree about it. Some people think that he can do that because they have a very broad view of executive power and other people don't think that they can. I think what everybody agrees with, however, is that if he did have that power, and I tend to think he would not, that it would be a terrible thing for our democracy if he did use that power to pardon himself. You know, I guess the closest example would be Nixon and Ford, where Nixon resigned and then Ford pardoned him. And I don't mean to say anything negative about President Ford. He and I were friends. We served on a on a board together. But do you think there was some kind of deal there? And if we get into office, could President Trump, you know, anoint a, a favorable vice president, get into office, resign, and then have a deal with his vice president to pardon him and kind of avoid the whole thing? Well, I think that the problem with your hypothetical is the the odds of Trump resigning are zero if he's elected again. So I cannot <laughs> imagine that possibly happening. No, unless he's facing jail. I guess it would be about the only situation I could imagine. Uh, I think that he would I, – I, I just cannot imagine that. I think that he would – I mean, I, I don't know what's going to happen because I think that part of what we're seeing in this is all these sorts of norms that we thought were – rules and they're not as hard and fast as we thought they were. So I don't know what he would do if he is convicted and then found to be president. Would he abide by what a court orders for him in terms of a punishment? I doubt it. Could he even serve from jail? You mean as president? No, I mean, I don't, there's no, there's no way that if he was sentenced to uh, prison time that he would be serving when he is president. I mean, I think the issue would be if he was convicted now and he was sentenced to prison and assuming he then ran for president and won, I think that any court would just set off the time for him to report for custody. It'd be an interesting issue. The Supreme Court is right now trying to figure out whether or not he's barred from uh, running if he's actually, well, none of these convicted. So, I mean, I would like to think that the American public, if you have a situation where you have somebody who is convicted of one of these crimes, that they would not elect him. But he seems to be using these allegations to whip up his base and get people to be more supportive of him. So I don't know what would happen. But I guess I do strongly think that if in the event that he is convicted and he is sentenced to serve prison time and then he is elected that he's not going to have to do that time until after he finishes his, his uh, term. And, and, you know, we have some precedent for that. I, I have, uh, in, I used to live in Pennsylvania where State Senator Dan Flood was put in jail for 
bribery and extortion and a few other things and was still elected to the state Senate and served while he was in jail. You know, I, I just think that the difference between Trump and any other politician, I think that, that you know, the, he just, there's just different rules that apply. I mean, there shouldn't be different rules, but the consequences, when, when he does something wrong or he's accused of something, it doesn't have the same repercussions. So I can imagine that a court that would feel comfortable sentencing somebody to prison time and not worrying about what consequence it has for our union and for someone trying to overthrow our government and to political violence wouldn't be as worried about a state senator from Pennsylvania as they would be about Donald Trump. Certainly not, but these days, who knows? Well, with Jack Smith's case in Washington, D.C., how strong do you think that election interference case is? I think it's a very strong case. Uh, I think that he, I mean, his indictment is very impressive. It's very long. It's very detailed. I mean, he did not have to provide as much information as he did. He clearly was speaking to an audience. He was trying to show that his indictment had legitimacy. So I think that it is a strong case. He was smart to, um, you know, not to, to use the kinds of statements that Trump where Trump's co-conspirators, the unindicted co-conspirators were making, that to use those and to not try to open up First Amendment issues for the kind of statements that Trump was making. Um, you know, one thing that's interesting, you asked me about the evidentiary stuff. I'm an evidence professor, which is my favorite thing to teach. I mean, one thing that's so smart about this is that because Smith charged him with conspiracy, all the statements of the unindicted conspirators, those all count as admissions and they're not hearsay. And so it allows tons of, I mean, it just allows lots and lots of evidence to come in. So it was a part of what Smith is charging Trump with, but also it allows Smith then to have evidence he can bring to court. One of the things we don't know is, I mean, whenever you have jurors, and this really goes for any of these cases, jurors always have the right to nullify. And so even if you have really strong evidence, jurors can always decide they don't want to follow the law. Now, they can't do that to convict somebody if, in fact, there's not enough evidence to prove that somebody's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt and jurors convict, an appellate court will reverse it. But if a jury acquits, even if the evidence was overwhelming, because of double jeopardy, the acquittal stands. Right. Well, Tamara, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app. It can be frustrating to wade through the malpractice insurance application process, but you know you need to protect your firm. Alps designed their application to be flexible, easy, and 100% online. Fill it out, review your quote, accept, and pay in as little as 10 minutes. 
Alps is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance, and they are endorsed by more bar associations than any other carrier, so they understand law firms. They also know how valuable your time is, and that's why they make legal malpractice insurance easy. Visit alpsinsurance.com to learn more. That's A-L-P-S insurance.com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm joined by Professor Tamara Lay from University of Miami. She teaches evidence along with criminal procedure and a host of other things. But since we're talking about evidence, let's delve back into that conspiracy evidence and the unindicted co-conspirators for uh, uh, for the people in our audience who are not trial lawyers and not evidence hounds. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yes. So in general, in court, there's a bar on hearsay. So out-of-court statements admitted to prove the truth of the matter asserted. And when you say out-of-court, you're talking about out-of-court from this proceeding in front of this jury or this judge. And so um, if you have, however, statements, if one party is trying to bring in a statement of a party opponent, there's an exception to that in federal court. Those are called admissions. And admissions can be direct admissions, various kinds of admissions. But one of the accept, one of the kind of admissions there are are statements of conspir- co-conspirators. And so what that means is that for Trump, all of his unindicted co-conspirators, the statements that they made, those are admissible against Trump. And they just get to come in for the truth of the matter. So the jurors, when they hear that, they get to take them for their truth to whether they they can choose not to believe them, but they come in as substantive evidence. And, you know, one thing that's interesting about that is there's, I mean, of course, Trump has several different criminal cases against him, trials that we're not sure if or when they'll take place. But what it means is that the statements that are made at those trials, they can be brought in. So trial one statements are made. They can be brought in at trial two, either because it's the same co-conspirator, because there's an overlap between co-conspirators in uh, Georgia as in federal court in D.C., or a prosecutor can decide they want to add new co-conspirators based on evidence they hear. So there's a way in which this could snowball based on every trial that that ha- all the evidence that happens can build prosecutors can build on it and then use it. And these are also interrelated. Well, let's talk a little bit about the 34 felony counts that uh, exist in New York. I think Thursday, the day that this was recorded, he appeared in court uh, this morning and got assigned a March 25th trial date. So yes, he made a motion to have that case dismissed. The judge denied that motion. The judge set a trial date in March, as you said. That's the date that they will begin jury selection. And most people thought that the case in Washington, D.C. would go first. But the case right now, it appears the case in New York is going to go uh, first. And this case is... You know, I think many people, I, I was one of them that thought, well, gosh, compared to the other kinds of things they can charge him with, this seems more de minimis. Of course, in a different world, we wouldn't have thought that. In a different world, we would have thought that somebody was who was paying hush money, that that was problematic. But this is former President Trump, and we've heard about lots of bad things that he is accused of having done. But, you know, in this case, they're going to rely on, the prosecutor will rely on Mr. Cohen, his former lawyer and fixer. And so he's not going to be an ideal witness, but it's a New York City jury, which I think will cut for the prosecutor here. 
I don't think that Trump is likely to get jail time if he's convicted. But, you know, one of the things that's interesting to think about here is whether Trump could ever get jail time. And there's a way in which it's going to be in a later prosecutor or a later sentencing judge's favor. Every case that happens, I think, will make it or every conviction will make it easier for the next prosecution to feel like they're legitimate going forward. And it may make it easier then for a judge to sentence him to jail time or to prison time because all of a sudden they don't have just simply former President Trump. They have former President Trump who's a convicted felon. Right. Isn't this bookkeeping case really a little bit reminiscent of the Al Capone situation? Yes, it is. Yes, but I mean, look, at the same time, part of what we're seeing is this person who just doesn't follow rules, this person who looks at the law and just flouts it. And so this is sort of like a, I mean, I have a 10-year-old daughter, and I remember when she was learning how to crawl and then when she took her first steps. And, you know, there's a way in which this is simply like if you go out for a restaurant and you're given your amuse-bouche by the, by the, uh, by the waiter before your appetizer comes. This is just simply the amuse-bouche before the more serious conduct. You know, I mean, this is, this matters. This matters. It's just com- in comparison to everything else, it, it matters less. And of course, they, with Al Capone, they, you know, the prosecutors went after what they could, knowing he was doing much more serious things. And the jury knowing it. I mean, you know, how in this situation can Trump ever get an impartial jury? You know, I think what's interesting about it is, of course, when you think about choosing a jury, both former President Trump and the prosecutor has the right, they both have the right to an impartial jury. And what that means is that judges, they can request and a judge can excuse jurors for cause. And then they also have the right to exercise peremptory challenges. They can't do that on the basis of race or gender, but they can just strike people because, you know, they don't like them. And so we would hope that the judge is going to pay attention and strike people that can't be fair. I think that Trump is more likely to get a fair trial than the prosecutor is, and let me explain why. So during voir dire, during the the jury selection process, the parties are going to ask questions, the judge can ask questions, and then they can make their motions not in front of the judge to strike people for cause. Let's say that we have parties that uh, somebody who wants Trump to prevail. And we know that people are willing to um, engage in violence to keep Trump in office. So it certainly doesn't um, defy reason to think that somebody would be willing to lie during the jury selection process to get on a jury to ensure that the jury at least hangs. And so what you can imagine is if somebody feels that way, then the prosecutor can't strike them for cause because they don't have a record to strike them for cause. Maybe they're out of peremptory challenges, I mean, depending where the case is tried, or they may not even realize what's going on in this potential juror's heart of hearts. And so then all of a sudden you get a jury with one or more biased person. And one of the things to remember, I was talking about jury nullification earlier. I mean, let's say for the sake of argument, you had 12 jurors, all of whom were planning to not um, abide by their sworn oath to uphold the law, that they were going to vote to acquit former President Trump regardless of what the evidence was. And let's say that after they acquit, the prosecutor finds out it doesn't matter. The acquittal is an acquittal. 
So I think that the prosecutor has more to worry about in terms of jury selection than the defense does. But I mean, look, they got a jury in the E. Jean Carroll case, so they certainly can get a jury. I just think it's going to require the judge really paying attention, asking questions, letting the parties ask questions. And of course, that then makes me worried about the case in Florida in front of Judge Cannon and how she's going to handle things if that case should ever go to trial, which I'm not sure it ever will. All right. Well, Tamara, it's time for another quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back and we'll jump into that Florida case. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. Democracy Decoded, a podcast by Campaign Legal Center, examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. Listen at democracydecoded.org to their new season, which takes a deep dive into democracy at the state and local level by highlighting different ways to ensure that every voter's voice is heard. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm back with Professor Tamara R. Lave. She's from the University of Miami. We've been talking about President Trump's multitude of criminal cases. And let's get into the Florida case with Judge Cannon, who seems to be ruling in his favor and delaying the case. Yes. I am one of many people who is concerned about what's happening in that case. I mean, one area of concern is her experience. This is a very, very serious case. She doesn't have a lot of experience in these sorts of matters. So that concerns me because there's going to be lots of serious evidentiary and other in limit, other rulings that she may not be sort of as, as able to handle. But the bigger question, of course, is the bias question. And, you know, it should not be the case that because she was appointed by former President Trump, that she is biased in his favor. But the record seems to be that she is, in fact, biased in his favor. So the ruling she made in which she had said that the government was not allowed to use evidence that was taken from or that was obtained from a search warrant. Of course, the 11th Circuit smacked her down and said, you know, that's not okay. But she still did that. And she just has ruled recently that the Trump was allowed to release the names of the witnesses in that case. That seems to me to be just gravely problematic. It's just impossible for me not to know, unless she's had her head in the sand, how she could not know about the threats of violence against various court officials in the various kinds of cases and an election. I mean, all kinds of people that have gone against Trump the way that they are threatened. And then that she would allow the names of these witnesses to be released publicly seems to me to be reckless at best. 
And I worry because, you know, what does it mean in terms of whether or not these people are actually going to come to court? And Mr. Former President Trump has a Sixth Amendment right to confront and cross-examine his accusers, which I believe is a very important right. But what that means is that if he, if, if there were statements that were made, even at the grand jury, if they were not cross-examined by Mr. Trump's lawyer, then those statements cannot come in. And so, you know, if, if these names are released and people are too afraid or too intimidated to come to court, that's a real problem for the prosecutor. So those are two things that worry me. And the other thing is that, yes, there was a motion by former President Trump to continue the trial until after the election. She denied that motion, but really she kind of has, even though she didn't grant it in, in words, she's granted it in deed because she has delayed various kinds of pretrial motions. And so what that means is that she may just in effect have delayed the trial. So that's very problematic because she took a vow to uphold the constitution. She's supposed to be an impartial judge. These are very, very serious charges for the United States. You know, I'm, I'm a citizen of this country and I would like this case to go to trial. And I am not confident that it will anytime soon. I'm not confident that it will be a fair trial. And I was bringing up issues about jury selection earlier. I do worry about what's going to happen if you're in front of a judge that, I mean, imagine Trump makes a motion and says this witness is biased and she strikes them. Okay, well, if that's a mistake, remember, just remember the double jeopardy issues. If what ends up happening is, so say what happens is, Trump makes a motion to kick for cause every juror that's not biased towards him. And she grants them. Well, they're removed. And so now what, imagine, imagine what, what Smith does is he files an interlocutory appeal to try to challenge what's happening in court. Well, that's a delay. And we know that we're under a time gun because we know that at the um, election, if former President Trump is reelected, then this case is not going to go forward. So Smith is under time pressure, which means that Judge Cannon knows that she can kind of have a, a problematic courtroom going and there's not a lot that Smith can do. I mean, there's a way in which, you know, all these people in the, in the criminal justice system and in the court system, you have to operate with good faith. And I worry that she is, that she's not. And remember, if in fact a jury is, impaneled, right? A jury is sworn in, that jury is biased, and that jury acquits former President Trump. And even if we find out later that they say, we never were going to convict, we, li we lied on the record, we li misrepresented it, there is nothing that Smith can do once the not guilty verdict has come down. Yeah, that's an amazing result. Well, let's jump into the Georgia case. Let's leave the classified document case behind us. And uh, we've got Fannie Willis having an affair and potentially being disqualified. What does this mean for the case? You know, it's, it's, I have to say it's very, it's, it's very disappointing that she did this, that she had a relationship with this person. She just, there's no problem with having a relationship with a prosecutor in your office. She just should have been upfront about it. She just should have, I mean, there's no issue. And the issue about whether or not she's getting some kind of material advantage because the prosecutor she's having the relationship with used part of his salary to pay for them to do various things, that's not an issue either as long as he is 
uh, qualified for the job. So there's a way in which this is smoke and mirrors. There's a way in which this is an issue that should never have become an issue. But if she is removed from office or removed from this case for this, it doesn't affect the case itself. I mean, one thing that's really good here is that former President Trump was indicted by a grand jury. And so in California, where I practice law, we have preliminary hearings. Well, there are grand juries too, but most cases are decided by a prelim. So the judge decides whether there's enough evidence to hold somebody to answer for the charges. But in Atlanta, they used a grand jury, which means that a group of citizens They listened to the evidence, she presented the evidence, and those citizens held there was enough evidence to bind, uh, to hold uh, former President Trump to answer for these charges, which gives them a legitimacy. And so what that means is that even if she is uh, removed from the case, those charges are still good charges. They can still go forward. They should still go forward. But there will be a delay because somebody will have to be caught up to speed. And we know that delays matter because of this upcoming election. has been a steady Trump strategy to delay practically everything. Yes. I mean, it's funny, as a parent, you want your, to bring up your children to be, or at least I want to bring up my child, to be honest and have integrity and to whatever, whatever accolades she gets to earn them and to work hard. And it is amazing the lesson that we're getting from former Trump's It's just kind of like, you know, whatever you can do to um, get around rules. Now, look, I will say one thing, which is, of course, like you, I, I, I was a public defender. And so your job as a public defender is to advocate for your client. That is your job. So I'm not saying that the lawyers are doing the wrong thing by advocating for their client. It's just that when you look at this person whose entire life seems to be to evade rules and evade justice and evade accountability, it's really, it's really problematic. And to be supposedly successful at it and make a lot of money. In any event, where do you think these cases are going to end up? Is he going to be convicted on these things? Is he going to go to jail? What are your thoughts? So I do think that he is likely to be convicted on at least some, I think there, I don't think he'll be convicted in Florida I think he could certainly be convicted of at least one charge in Washington, D.C., and also in Georgia. I mean, we, we, I didn't talk about the fact that we have four co-defendants that pled guilty, which means they're not cooperating witnesses, which is going to make it much easier for the government to prove their case. I mean, one of the things that's hard about that case is it's, there's so many co-defendants that it's unwieldy and it makes it sort of hard to to try it. But the cooperating co-defendants makes it easier. So I can't imagine convictions. Can I imagine custody time? You know, I right now it's it's hard to imagine it, but I don't know. I mean, part of what happens is you're, we're in a moment, right? We are in a present right now where we're looking at, can we imagine custody time? And the answer is no. But if we move forward and there is a conviction in a case, and then another conviction, well, our present will be different. Our reality will be different. We will see him different. The public will see him different. And then maybe then, you know, people, not everybody clearly, but maybe more people will think that he in fact should do custody time and then he will. 
I mean, it's hard to answer it until we see where we get. But right now, I mean, getting to a trial with evidence presented and proving him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, that's a very big deal. I think if we get there, we may then be in a space where prison would be appropriate. And certainly, based on the gravity of these charges, it is appropriate. You know, one of the things I was thinking about recently was when I was a public defender, when I was a public defender, it was during uh, three strikes. I mean, three strikes still existed, but in its old version. And I remember I had a client once who was out of custody and he came in and he was charged with 0.03 grams of crack cocaine. That's so little. It means they literally scraped the cocaine pipe. I'm not even sure it's a usable amount. And he had two strike priors that were very old and they charged the priors. So he was looking at life in prison for 0.03 grams of cocaine base. Understand the guy's out of custody. So he's taken into custody. I fought, fought to get the, to get the prosecutor to strike a strike, which meant that he got double the midterm. So he got four years in prison that he served at 80% for 0.03 grams of cocaine base. And if you think about what the purpose of the criminal law is. The criminal law is supposed to have this expressive function and it's supposed to express, you know, the the sort of values of our society. And you think about the number of people that are serving prison time for drug offenses or for, you know, a low-level burglary. And then you think about somebody that if he's convicted of these crimes— Yes, he deserves to go to prison. Well, when you put it together with the OJ case, maybe the lesson we're getting here is that rich people get away with things. Unfortunately, yes. Well, Tamara, that's just about the end of our program. I want to thank you very much for being on our show. It's been a pleasure having you. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. It was great to talk with you. Well, here are a few of my thoughts about today's topic. Obviously, I am not a fan of Trump and... I am as curious about the rest of us as to where these criminal cases are going. Didn't fare too well in the Eugene Carroll case. Couldn't keep his phone quiet and defamed her a second time and got punished for it. But let's see whether he learns that lesson. These cases, the criminal ones, are quite a bit different. Today's case, forcing a trial date in the next month, is going to be very interesting because that certainly will come before the election. And as Professor Lave said today, the first conviction will make the second easier for the ensuing judges and courtrooms to find him guilty and potentially put him in jail, if that will ever happen. There's a serious lesson here, I think, with comparison between President Trump and OJ's criminal case. And I hope the lesson that our jurors learn is that rich people don't get away with things just because they're rich and they want to bend the law. That's it for Craig's rant on today's topic. Let me know what you think. If you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.